Well, if you will pray for me like that every week, I think we, we may actually do something for the Lord in Austin, Texas. I know that in Austin, Texas, not to begin a new line of strife, which Jeremy helped us to confess this morning, but we, we do have the best barbecue in the world. And I'll explain that it is biblical. Uh, you might know from the Old Testament the priesthood was given to the line of Aaron, and that the portion of meat which was given to the priest to eat in the Old Testament is the brisket. In Austin, Texas, we know God's truth that true good barbecue is brisket. And in Austin, the number one barbecue place is owned and smoked by none other than Aaron Franklin. I don't know what else to say. So, it's biblical. I want to thank you for your warm welcome to me this morning, uh, meeting you in the hallway, for your prayer, for your fellowship, for your singing worship team. Thank you so much for ministering to me. Um, Brother Bob, who taught in the block this morning, I feel like I owe you tuition uh, for what you've given me. Thank you for the encouragement uh, and for the instruction, for the help. Uh, praise God. When you think about Christianity or about Jesus what comes to your mind? Does a certain political party come to your mind? Christianity is not about a political party or a public policy. When you think about Christianity or Jesus, what does come to your mind? Being nice to people? Christianity is not even first about being nice to people or doing nice things for other people. Christianity is not about positive thinking or inspirational quotes. Are you hoping that by being a Christian or by doing some good things in Christ's name that you will have financial prosperity or financial security? Christianity is not about financial prosperity or security. Christianity is not simply about going to church and doing religious things. Christianity rises and falls. It is either all true or it is all false based on this one thing. That Jesus Christ, God's own Son, died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He raised to new life. Not that there is a good story passed down about Jesus raising from the dead. Not that God's love is exemplary for us or exemplified for us in how we should live by Jesus dying for us. But that as surely as you and I sit here in the flesh and take breaths this morning, Jesus was a man, He really did die, and He really did in His body raise from the dead. If you take this away, Christianity has nothing to offer you. It is either all true, or it is entirely useless, and as Bob said this morning, meaningless. Meaningless. Christianity does not rise or fall on being the majority. I know that some Christians today are anxious or nervous about Christianity no longer being the majority. 
I know that my father's generation, for example, is feeling this much more acutely than I in my generation. We are entering now a time in America where the nuns, if you will, will be the majority religion in our country. We're only a few years behind the secularistic pace and trajectory of Europe. It's already been recorded in Europe that the new generation coming up in Europe, the largest religious affiliation is nuns, not N-U-N-S. That would be a different story. N-O-N-E-S. When you, are asked, when you ask them what religion they are, they will tend to mark none. None. I have none. I was not raised in the church. I did not go to the church. I did not lead to the church. I've never been to the church. It was reported in the Washington Post just before Easter this year that the membership in a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, any of those religions, for the first time, is below 50% in the American population. Only 36% of the millennial generation say that they are currently connected to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Does that bother me as a pastor? Should it rattle us as Christians? No. It should not bother anyone who is considering Christianity. Those who follow Christ and who believe in Jesus have more often than not throughout history not been the favored majority in any given country, nation, or people. It's not normal historically. Christianity does not rise or fall on the faithfulness of Christians either. Friends, maybe you've been abused. Maybe you've been hurt by those who claim to follow Jesus, some who are in the name of Christ. Just know that those who are doing those things to you, who are truly wicked and evil, were not following Christ. Perhaps you've been disappointed by Christians who made a mistake in your life. Listen, if you've been at church for about five minutes, you're going to bump into a Christian who disappoints you who may even sin against you. Christianity does not rise or fall on Christians' faithfulness to Christ. All through the New Testament, Christians are found having trouble being Christians. The books of 1 Peter, James, 1 Timothy, Hebrews, Romans, 1 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and more are partly or wholly written to address failures, struggles, immaturities, and sins in Christians trying to be Christians. You can't even look at the Christians in the New Testament and say, let's all be just like them. The Bible was written to help them be better Christians. Friends, the gospel of Jesus, the reliability of Jesus, and the truthfulness of the Bible are not built on the shiny reputation of Christians. Are Christians supposed to be salt and light in a dark world? A people who are holy as God is holy, brothers and sisters, we ought to tremble to consider that. Yes, we are called to be holy as God Himself is holy. But we are often not. We are not yet made whole. We are not yet finally glorified, as Paul promises. The truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, does not rise or fall with the faithfulness of Christians. One pastor or author tells about a time when he was inviting a clerk at a local grocery store to church when he was going through the line getting his groceries, and he just simply invited her to come down the street to their church and join him sometime. Uh, the woman replied to him, I'd rather not do that. And he asked why. He said, well, I, I really, the woman said, I, I know, know that the church is filled with vipers. 
He said, what do you mean by that? She said, I just know that the church is filled with hypocrites and liars and hatred. And he said, well, do you think that the world outside of the church is really so much better? She said, no, I suppose I guess it's not. He said, the only thing I think is the difference is that inside the church, those who are truly part of the church, they know Jesus, they trust Jesus has died for those sins, they're aware of those sins, and they're trying to repent of those sins. Which makes us no really more different than you, except that you don't know Jesus, so you're welcome to slither on into church anytime. <laughs> but friends, this is the nature of the church. We are not perfect, we serve a perfect king who's died for us and is making us new. I'm here this week to travel with Michael this afternoon to the Southern Baptist Convention. If you read the news, it's not hard to find news on the Southern Baptist Convention this week. It's disgusting, it's disorienting, it's frustrating, it's disappointing. Christianity, the truthfulness of Christ, does not rise or fall on the faithfulness of the SBC or our leaders or what's in the headlines. What in the world could make Christianity, Jesus, or the Bible something worth considering? Why remain a Christian as we are increasingly feeling we are in the minority in the world? Let me encourage you with something. The thing on which Christianity, Christ Himself, and the Bible rises and falls has not changed for 2,000 years. Our most central apologetic, if you will, has not developed so far it has been unchanged for the duration of Christianity. You do not have to get creative or too innovative or chase every changing culture to find ways to be relevant to the world. The most important thing, the thing about which Christ rises or falls as true or false in the world has never changed. Look with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, begin in verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Just let that sink in for me. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Paul has just spent the first 14 chapters of the book of Corinthians going issue by issue, dealing with the immaturity and the sin of the church in Corinth. Chapter 1 and chapter 3, he notes that they are a divided church, which Paul assumes is impossible because Christ is not divided into parts. Chapter 5 and 6, there is sexual immorality in the church that's so gross, the pagan world doesn't even live that way. Go to chapter 9, they're not paying their pastors. Chapter 11, when they do the Lord's Supper, some people who are poor come and they're given no food and other people leave the Lord's Supper drunk. There's fighting about boasting about who has the best spiritual gifts in chapters 11 through 14. And we see in chapter 15, they don't even agree on the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul's dealing with a very difficult, immature church. He actually refers to them in chapter 3 as infants in Christ. 
which I think is Paul's theologically kind way of saying, ah, this is how I'm going to deal with you bunch of babies. We're going to deal with it one issue at a time. And then he comes to chapter 15, and look, at it, look what he says again, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Friends, let's consider this for a moment. If Paul needed to remind First Baptist Corinth, if you will, about the gospel, how much more do you think we need to be reminded of the gospel? Acts chapter 18, verse 11, Paul says that Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and six months before moving on. And yet when he writes them some years later, he has to remind them of the gospel. Can you just imagine if we had a year and a half long Bible conference with Paul? If he were our resident staff pastor for a year and a half and still has to write back later and goes, now let me remind you of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, most of our greatest problems, whether it's Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, or Emmanuel Tuscaloosa here in Alabama, is that we forget the gospel so easily. Instead, we tend to remember politics. We remember what clique we're in in the church. We remember everyone else's sins. And we need to be reminded of the gospel. Friends, I wonder if you would just take time to admit right now, come humbly before God, before Christ, as a Christian, and say, I need to be reminded of the gospel. I need to be reminded of the gospel. I have gone through so many weeks and so many days forgetting the good news of Jesus Christ. God, would you help me remember today? Next thing he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 5. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Of first importance. Which means other things are important. Everything I've just spent 14 chapters talking about are important. But this is of first importance. If we don't get this thing of first importance, we don't get anything else. It's like serving unsweetened tea at a restaurant. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you miss the thing of first importance? We don't live in England. We live in Alabama and Texas. Paul says this is the thing of first importance. Without this, you have nothing. Friends, listen in close. The Bible doesn't have any secrets about what matters. You don't need an encoder ring to get this. This is of most importance. And look what he says. What I also received, look what he passes on. One, that Christ died for our sins. Two, in accordance with the Scriptures. Three, that He was buried. 
4, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures 5, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. That is of first importance. Is that of first importance to you today? Let's pick this up one piece at a time and see what Paul says is so important to the church, even a struggling, especially a struggling church like Corinth. Number one, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. This is what Jesus means. When John the Baptist, the prophet who came before Jesus, saw him for the first time in John chapter 1 or 2, I believe, behold, he says, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he died as a lamb slain, a sacrifice for sin. This is a reference to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where God makes atonement through sin, for sin, through sacrifice. And John the Baptist is saying, now there's a lamb. That's the lamb of God for the sins of the whole world. Paul says it like this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. God forgave us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God had a legal demand against us because of our sin. Indebted to Him because of our sin against Him. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this, He said, our sin, He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, let me ask you, are you aware how stuck your sins are to you? Whatever it may be, your adultery, lying, any addiction, hatred, bitterness that you're protecting toward others, your love for political power, your treasuring and security in money, Are you aware of how stuck your sin is to you? I wonder if you would get this picture in your mind that Paul has just painted for us in Colossians chapter 2. That on the day that Jesus was crucified, it was not only Roman soldiers nailing Jesus to the cross, but that what was happening was that God was nailing our sin to the cross. Nailing the record of our sin. Our sin, Paul says, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. As the nails were pounded to Jesus' hands and feet, God was nailing our sin to Christ and to the cross. So that we can say as Psalm 103 verse 12 that as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Christ died for our sins. He was not killed for nothing. He did not die by accident. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He died intentionally for our sins, for your sin, for my sin. And Paul says this is of first importance. 
This is, a first, this is what the Bible is about. God loving mankind so much that he sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins so that Christ might bear the wrath of God. And what's most important for us about the cross is that Jesus looked up into heaven and prayed what Michael preached last week. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the clouds had grown dark as Jesus bore our sin on himself. This is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, and secondly, that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. When Jesus died on the cross for sin, it was according to the Scripture. You know some of these fulfillments. Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. The prophet Isaiah said that he would be born of a virgin, as we just mentioned, Psalm 22 foreshadows him being pierced in his hands and his feet. I know that this year you've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And what does Matthew say over and over and over? Maybe more than other Gospels. That the Scriptures might be fulfilled. That the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Things keep happening that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. It's the end of almost every phrase in Matthew chapter 3. That the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And Jesus knew that that's what he was walking in. When the guards came to take Jesus to be crucified, Jesus did not resist. Why? Because he knew that he was walking into God's will, fulfilling what God had said for him. The very moment that Jesus was betrayed by one of his own to be killed, Jesus said, but all this has been taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is the Bible's way of saying, God said that it would be so. The whole Bible can be understood like this. The Old Testament, God makes promises. The New Testament, God keeps promises. According to the Scriptures. The Scriptures being fulfilled means God's Word and God's prophesied promises have come true. That He foretold it. And this has always been of first importance to God. This has always set apart God from other gods from false gods in the world, separating Yahweh from false gods in Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah says this, Remember the former things of old. You don't need new things. You need some old things. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. It is not just incredible that Christ died for our sins, but of first importance that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, that Jesus died according to God's all-knowing, sovereignly pre-revealed plan, proving God put this together, that Jesus dying on the cross is God accomplishing His foretold plan. This is of first importance. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Thirdly, He was buried. Chapter 15, verse 4. He was buried. There was a man put in a grave, is what Paul means. Maybe you've heard of the fainting theories that Jesus didn't really die. He just passed out from all of the trauma that was on the cross. No one really gives this any credibility because the Bible doesn't claim this. And if this were to be untrue, the Bible really 
falls apart. Jesus told us, he told his disciples upon the first time that he was referred to as the Christ in Matthew 16. From there forward, he began telling his disciples, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to raise again on the third day. I'm going to be killed, is the, the word that he used. If Jesus didn't die, well, his fake death is of no use to us. It's not even a good story. A fake or metaphorical death would be a very sad letdown for us. Romans says the wages of sin is death. Our problem is that the wages of sin is death. Imagine if you were paid in counterfeit checks. I've already got a couple no head shakes. No one would be okay with this, right? Try to pay your bills with counterfeit dollars. It doesn't matter if they're real dollars. It's the thought that counts. Just try it. And YouTube video it so we can watch what happens. It doesn't work. A dollar can't pay your deal, your bills, and a fake death can't cancel our sin. The wages of sin is death. This is what was of most important to Paul. Christ died according to the scripture. He was buried, the tomb sealed. He was dead, dead, really dead. And then what? Fourthly, he was raised. The resurrection of Jesus is the vindication, the paid in full stamp to let us know that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is God's son, that sin is paid for in full, and that new life is available to all who would come, confess, and believe in him. You've probably heard this before. C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, he's famous for explaining it this way, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. You ever heard someone being accused, or maybe you've accused someone of having a Messiah complex? You know what that means? Someone who thinks of themselves so highly he sounds like you have a Messiah complex. Everywhere you go, you think everyone just ought to bow down and follow you. Did you know that Jerusalem syndrome, however, is a real thing? I'm not saying that the people you have around you should be diagnosed as such. But during the years of 1980 to 1993, for example, there were upwards of 100 cases reported each year in Jerusalem. Cases where seemingly otherwise normal and sound-minded individuals would visit the ancient city of Jerusalem and begin to believe themselves to be the Messiah and to proclaim them as such in the streets of Jerusalem. A hundred people a year. I mean, that doesn't sound demonic to me. To use Lewis's words, we would call them lunatics. Crazy people. They're not the Messiah. They... They were working at Burger King. They took a tour to Jerusalem. They're not the Messiah. There's no miracles. There's nothing. Is Jesus just a guy making claims about being the Messiah? Or was he buried and then he rose from the dead? 
was he buried and then rose from the dead. This is of first importance to you, church, that Jesus died really and really rose from the dead. Let it sink in. This is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins. That He was buried in accordance with the Scriptures. That He rose again. This is of first importance. Finally, Paul says, He appeared First to Peter, then to the twelve. It's important for us to think for a moment that Jesus' resurrection was not a theoretical event. The claim of the Bible has always been that it is a historically credible eyewitness account of miraculous events. The New Testament authors. If you've ever wondered about the Bible, did you know that the Bible is truly and critically attestable to be the most reliable ancient historical document that we have. You might say, well, that sounds like a sales pitch. Of course Christians would say that. (laughs) Maybe that's you. Maybe you're wrestling with the reliability of the Bible itself. Maybe your friends would say, well, you know what? The Bible has been copied, and it's been copied, and it's been copied. Those copies have been translated to what we have today. No one can even know what the originals say. Friends, when people ask me that, I tend to say, I understand that textual criticism is extremely important to you. What exactly are your tests for discovering what is a reliable ancient document? I have seen a lot of blank stares when asked that question. I don't consider myself to be a professional textual criticist in the formal sense. But when you look at the Bible, the funny thing is, the copies of the copies of the copies are what makes the Bible so incredibly reliable. We know what the Bible says more than any other document because of the copies that we have in Syriac and Coptic and Latin in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, which the only only conceivable reason they might say the same thing is that the originals all said the same. Paul's point here is that what we are saying in the Bible is credible. His point was, eventually in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, we saw Him risen. Peter saw Him risen. The twelve saw Him risen. He showed Himself to over 500 people. Most of them are still alive. In other words, you can go ask them. This is not me and my buddies going into a cave making up stories. This was done before men, before women in the world. A great resource, if you'd like to study more on this, is a little, mercifully short book called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. He has a chapter, I think it's chapter 2 or 3, called Copies, Copies, and More Copies. Just consider the reliability of Scripture. Consider Paul's claim in his line of thinking of what's most important is that the Bible is credible. That the witness of Jesus Christ is credible. 
1 Corinthians chapter 4, 15, verse 4 to 6, Paul says it like this, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, that is, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Go ask them. If you choose not to believe the claims of the Bible, and that's one thing. But to say that the Bible is historically unreliable, and that it doesn't pass the basic elements of textual criticism. My well, friends, it doesn't even actually take faith to say that. It doesn't even actually take faith to believe the Bible is a reliable, reliable historical document. Just put it up against any ancient document. This is of most importance to Paul. Rises or falls on these things. All Christianity rises and falls. There's nothing more important to Christianity. There's nothing more important to us than the historically credible, Scripture-fulfilling death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. I have a member of our church who has just completed a third round of chemo for intestinal cancer. It's been a couple of years, ups and downs and surgeries and a lot of prayer and recovery. And on Sunday, he stood before our church last week in our announcement time and said, I'm, I've done what I think is my last chemo treatment. And we pray that it is his last. He came up to me one ser- on service one Sunday and we were talking about receiving that diagnosis and what it's like to hear the gospel. He, he thanks me almost every week, almost every Sunday, he thanks me for preaching the gospel and that we sing the gospel and that we read the gospel. He says, I just continue to hope more and more people would be excited about the gospel as if they heard excitement about getting the news that there's been a discovery of a cure of cancer. I've not had any personal family members go through cancer. I've had plenty of church members do that. I've been in the room with them. I've seen the anguish. I've seen their faces when they learn the news that they have cancer, the death certificate that it seems to be often Imagine someone coming into that room and saying, we've found the cure for cancer. No one in their right mind would say, that's good, but I have a golf appointment at 10 a.m. this morning. I've got to go. I've got more important things to do. That's helpful, but I've got a political rally this afternoon I can't miss. Really? Really? This is of first importance. Paul's saying this is of first importance. Friends, some Christians try to make the gospel and Christianity about so many things. Sometimes on purpose, vindictively, or accidentally even. Use Christianity like a Trojan horse, to be about things that they really care about. That they get self-righteousness from caring about. But friends, if Christianity to you is Christ to you, if Christ to this church is not about what is of first importance, if it's not of first importance to us, then it's all really worthless and pointless. The budget is really worthless and pointless. 
The future plans are really worthless importance. All your church attendance on Sunday morning is an utter waste of time. That is unless Jesus really did raise from the dead. This is of first importance. All Christianity, all of our faith, everything that we share, all the songs that we've sung this morning were helpfully put together to sing about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul continues his argument like this. Chapter 15, verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Christ has not risen from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruit, speaking about us to come, of those who have fallen asleep. Friends, if you'd just like Jesus for a few pointers and a few tips on how to live your life, and to you Jesus' hope is not that He raised from the dead after paying for your sins, oh friends, we are of most to be pitied. What a sad religion. That is the central truth, the central doctrine on which Jude has said has been once for all delivered to the saints. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, and to you, somehow, somewhere along the way, Christianity and church and fellowship and preaching and singing and prayer has become to you a dull religious burden, consider that it might have this for its root cause. That what is of most importance has become second. Or fourth, or tenth, or even as in Corinth, forgotten. Paul says this is of first importance, Christians. You might wonder about yourself how do I know if this is of first importance in my own life? Ask yourself these questions What do I love to talk about when I'm with other Christians? What do I love to talk about? When I'm with lost people, what do I love to talk about? There you will probably find what is of first importance in your heart and mind. You might ask yourself, what makes me the most angry? What do I get most worked up about? Am I home? in my church, at my job. We get angry about what's of most important to us. What gets you excited? What brings joy? What, what makes you float from place to place during the week? What is that thing that if everything else is going on in the world, you think this is going to give me joy and hope and peace? If it's not Christ, 
it's not of first importance yet in your heart and in your mind. Or maybe it was, and you let something take its place. Maybe today you would confess, you would pray, you would repent in your heart, God, help me make that which is of first importance to you be of first importance to me. All of the other things that I'm so worried about in Corinth, the division, the pastor's salary budget, which is an issue in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm not reading your church's mail. All of those things of first importance is to remember the gospel. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, just consider what Christianity really is. Consider on what Christianity really rises and falls. What's most important about Christianity? Maybe you would go home today if you're not a Christian and just read the Bible for yourself. Open up to the the book of John. Maybe you would ask for someone around you, some other Christian around you, and ask for other books or references on how to read through things. Maybe you'd talk to Pastor Michael or any church member about what you can do next to discover more about this thing which is of most importance. The Bible tells us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're not a Christian here today and you want to trust Christ, and you want to say, now I can get behind, I can believe, that makes sense. You can pray right now and trust God. You can trust in Christ. Confess your sins. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Believe that He was buried. Believe that He was raised again, according to the Scriptures. And have your sin removed as far as the east is from the west. You can do that right now. You don't have to go to a priest. You can do that by praying to the Lord today. I want to leave you with a picture of what it might look like for someone who doesn't believe in Christ to come to believe in Christ and how the things of importance in their life might change. Maybe Lee Strobel's experience would be relatable to you or someone that you know today. Lee was a Chicago journalist, Chicago Tribune journalist for many years, and one day his wife, Leslie, became a Christian, which led him to eventually begin to investigate Christianity himself. He says, I thought you know that this is the worst possible news that I could get, he explained. I thought she was going to turn into some repressed prude who was going to spend all of her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere, and I thought that this was the end of our marriage. He says Leslie did change, but to his surprise, the new version of his spouse was a welcome presence in their home. He says, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way that she related to me and our children. It was winsome. It was attractive. And it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day, mainly to see if I could get her out of this cult that she had gotten involved in. In his visit to the church, Strobel says he heard the message of Jesus taught in a way that was far different than what he had experienced before. This time, he could understand it. The pastor explained that forgiveness is a free gift, that Jesus died for our sins, so that we could spend eternity with our almighty and all-loving Father in heaven. Strobel says, I walked out saying, I was still an atheist, but also saying, if this is true, this has huge 
implications for my life. In other words, as Paul said, if this is true, this is of first importance. Strobel spent the next year and nine months putting his legal training and experience into journalism, researching and investigating whether or not there was any credibility to Christianity or any other faith system for that matter. Through all of his research, Strobel came to the conclusion that it would require more faith for him to continue being an atheist than it would for him to follow Jesus and become a Christian. He says, To be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against the torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ, and I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. So on that day, November 8, 1991, Lee Strobel received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He says, just like my wife, my life began to change. Over time, my values, my character, the purpose of my life began to be transformed in a way that as I look back, I can't imagine staying on the path I was on compared to the adventure and the fulfillment and the joy of following Jesus Christ. Notice Lee Strobel's testimony is not, I went to church and started doing church things. I started doing Christianly things. I started being nice to people. I started doing things that, no, no, no. What was of first importance to me changed? I realized that if Christ is the Son of God, crucified for sin, buried and raised, that this is the most important thing. And as he believed it, everything began to change. Consider today what is of most importance in the Bible should be most importance to us. Maybe you would spend the next hour the next year, for the first time, considering for Christ dying for sinners according to Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised, that He was witnessed. Christians, commit today. Commit today to make what is of most importance to the Apostle Paul, to make what is of most importance to Christ Himself, to God's Word, of most importance in your heart of most importance for your ears, of most importance in your mouth. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful kindness to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to show and display your infinite love. You owe us nothing, Father. You were never in debt to us. In our sin, we were, we are in debt to you. But what a wonderful thing to hear. The most important thing to you most important thing in your word, that which is of most importance is that Christ died for sins, canceling the record of the debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. 
What a wonderful joy. Well, I pray for this church. Would you, by your spirit, by preaching and singing and through fellowship, through personal devotion, help this church to continue making the most important thing the most important thing. Pray for any who are lost here today who have come here searching or even disbelieving that you might help open their hearts and bring tenderness in their hearts and minds about Christ dying for their sins. Father, would you help us all this week? Wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever room our mouths enter into, wherever our feet take us, whatever conversation that we're in, whatever news article we're reading, help us to keep of first importance, Christ for our sins, raised from the dead. Thank you, Father, for your kindness again, for your love for us, for these truths. Help us to be encouraged in all the ways we need encouraging today. Help us to repent in every way we need to repent. We love you. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.